Pastor David Jones. Welcome to my sermon archives. For more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. I pray God speaks to you as you listen. We are in the seventh week of a series called The River of Life, tracing the the river of life through the Bible from the Garden of Eden to the new heaven and the new earth in the book of Revelation, and seeing how, like one of the sinking rivers that uh, may be in this area, sometimes it's on the surface, sometimes it's underground, sometimes it comes back out in the spring and it's on the surface, and we've been tracing that through the Bible. We have looked at from creation all the way up to the end of the kingdom, the United Kingdom of King David and King Solomon, the height of the Israelite empire, you might say. And last week we saw also the uh, poetic books. We looked at Job and Psalms and Proverbs and so on. Today, we are in part seven, the decline and fall of Israel. And as part of that, we'll also be looking at the prophetic books of the Bible and how you read and understand those. But let's start with our key verse found in your bulletin. Second Chronicles 26, 5. As long as the king sought guidance from the Lord, God gave him success. Second Chronicles 26, 5. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, if you go through your Bible and you look at those, you may discover if you're trying to read your way through the Bible, which is a difficult thing, but a very rewarding thing, you'll discover that they cover the same material. Kind of like the Gospels, four Gospels that cover much of the same material of the life of Jesus. The first and second kings covers history of the kings of Israel and Judah from a political perspective. Chronicles covers the same material, but emphasizes the uh, material that would be more important to the priests. And so the, the chronology, I mean the, uh, the genealogies and, and a lot of that kind of thing. Last week we got to the end of David and Solomon and and the height of of glory and the kingdom extended over much of the Middle East and Solomon died and his son Rehoboam was named king. Now there always somehow had been a a little antagonism between the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin was pretty much in there, but it was a small land area. And basically, if you picture a map of Israel, the part north of Jerusalem, more or less, would be the ten tribes of Israel, and the southern part, Jerusalem and south, would be the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And there had always been some kind of a a differentiation there, or at least since the time of King Saul and King David, because King Saul uh, 
the northern tribes identified with Saul in his uh, fight against David. But of course, David overcame Saul, became the king. But when Solomon died, that division came again. Rehoboam acted like a young and headstrong and foolish ruler, and instead of following the advice of the older counselors he, uh, and, and conciliating the people who came to him from the north, he said, if you thought my father was hard on you, you haven't seen nothing yet. And they said, well, then you just go your way and we'll go ours. And they called a ruler out of exile, as we still see happening today in, in politics sometimes. A guy named Jeroboam, he came and became the leader of Israel. And there was a separation. And then Jeroboam said, now, as long as the people of Israel are still worshiping the God of Israel, they're going to go back to Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom, and I'm going to lose control of them. So he said, here's what I'm going to do. Just like Aaron, you remember Aaron coming out of the uh, out of Egypt with the promised land while people, while Moses was up on the Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, people came to Aaron and said, he's been gone so long, you know, take us back to, to Egypt or whatever, and Aaron got all their gold and made two calves. Well, Jeroboam did the same thing. He made two gold calves. So one at each end of the kingdom and said, go worship there. Don't go back to Jerusalem. And ever since that time, there was a division. The northern tribes worshipped the pagan gods, the idols, the calves, or whatever. The southern tribe continued to worship God in the temple, although very often they would also worship the pagans, and they would have a kind of a syncretism where they would mix. And, and they kind of felt like as long as they had the temple and as long as they gave God, his sacrifices, then they could also call on all these other gods. And how do you think God liked that? Not very well, as we could see from the readings. So the northern ten tribes were known as Israel, the southern part known as Judea, which is where the term Jew comes from, Judea. And eventually, the northern tribes got so much on God's nerves, they ignored the prophets that were sent to them, they continued to do all of this pagan idol worship, which involved all the way up to and including child sacrifice. That God finally said, they're not going to listen to me unless I just really bring the hammer down. And so he allowed the nation, the empire of Assyria, to come in and capture them. And that's what we heard in the second reading, was the synopsis of all of that and why it happened. Why didn't Assyria keep going a few more miles and capture Judea at the same time? Well, that's a really interesting story. Another one of my favorite Bible stories. We'll hear about that one next week. So stay tuned. That's what's called a teaser. See, you have to come back next week to hear that one. 
But I want to give you, that, that kind of sums up the history. But this also brings us, during this time is when all of the uh, prophets were writing. Starting here, the, that whole big section of the Bible that comes after the wisdom literature, after Psalms and Proverbs and so on, you've got all the prophets. And the prophetic books are very interesting, but they're kind of hard to understand sometimes. Anybody ever notice that as you're reading through the Bible? You say, wow, what in the world is this talking about? So I'm going to give you a quick intro to the prophetic books of the Bible. First, they're not in chronological order. Okay, that, A lot of people are confused. They, they think, well, naturally, the first one written would be the first one read, but they're not in chronological order. They're not grouped based on where the prophet lived, Israel or Judah. They're not grouped based on who the prophet was addressing. Various different empires were addressed by different prophets. It's really interesting how they're, they're grouped. They are more or less listed based on how long they are. The longest one's first and the shortest one's last. And that had something to do with how they fit on a scroll. So it's just interesting, because uh, it doesn't totally follow that way, but it's, it's interesting to know that. The first four are called the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and they're called major just because they're bigger, they're longer. And then there are 12 minor ones, which are the short stories. You've got the miracle prophets like Elijah and his successor Elisha, and they didn't write, but they did a lot of miracles, like the one that Ashlyn read for us, with the, the lightning coming down and striking the altar and burning up. I just love the way that, that Elijah not only put it up there, but he had him pour water on it. And God answered. What do you think would have happened if God hadn't answered? 400 prophets of, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, it's 850 prophets, and here's Elijah. If nothing had happened, I think Elijah wouldn't have lived very long. But he trusted God, and God backed him up. So you've got the miracle prophets and you've got the writing prophets. Some of them wrote before the exile. The exile is what we'll get into next week where the nation of Judah went to uh, Babylon, was carried away to Babylon for 70 years. Some of the prophets wrote during that time. Some of the prophets wrote after they came back. But the interesting thing is how to read these prophetic books. You have to understand that God didn't necessarily give visions in chronological order. So even within one of the books of the prophets, all these various visions that it describes didn't necessarily happen in order. That makes it hard. So you really have to kind of dig. You know, it's not that God doesn't want us to understand his word, but he wants to make sure that we care enough to put a little bit of effort into it. You know, there's some, it's like looking for gold. There's some nuggets you can pick up off the surface. 
But if you really want to make the strike, you have to dig some. And the Bible is the same. It's kind of like, have you ever stood up uh, someplace uh, where you could see various mountain ranges in the distance? Maybe the Rocky Mountains or where I'm from, uh, the, the Appalachian Mountains. You get up on top of a high place, one of those overlooks, and you look out over the mountain ranges. You may have a range here with the peaks, and then you may have a valley in between, and then you got a range here with the peaks, and a valley in between, and a range here with the peaks. But if the prophet is standing all the way back there, he's looking this way, all he sees is these peaks. He can't see the valleys in between. He can't see which one comes where. So this, this front thing may have peak A and peak B and peak C and peak D. And, and back here may have E and F and G and H. But from looking there, here's A and then here's H and then here's B and then here's I. And so from the prophet, it looks like it goes A-H-B-I. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? <laughs> this, this, I'm even confusing myself now at this point. But anyway, the point is, they can't see the valleys in between. The prophets can't see the, the time period between what he sees here and what he sees here, which looks to him like the next one going sideways, but... You can't see this distance in between. So that also makes it difficult to understand. And you need to try and figure those things out. Another thing to understand about the prophetic writings is there can be multiple fulfillments. It can describe something that is going to happen right away, but also have a fulfillment hundreds of years in the future. Probably the most common one is the prophecy of the virgin birth, where the immediate fulfillment was a young woman who may have not been married yet at the time of the prophecy, but got married and had a baby, and then these various things he was talking about happened. But also, that was a prophecy for hundreds of years in the future of the virgin birth of Jesus. So all of this makes it confusing. But the part that I love about it is, and, and any of you have, who have heard me uh, making what some would refer to as my alleged sense of humor, you know that I love puns, and I love wordplay, and I was so excited to find out that God loves puns, and he uses puns and wordplays and pictures in the prophecies. Jeremiah chapter 1. He's, God has just told Jeremiah to be a prophet. And now he's training how to be a prophet. So chapter 1 verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, look Jeremiah, what do you see? And I replied, I see a branch from an almond tree. And the Lord said, that's right. And it means that I'm watching. You say, how does that mean that? Well, because the Hebrew word for watching, shaked, sounds like the Hebrew word for almond tree, shaked. So God uses a pun. 
I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's why it's good to have a Bible with footnotes. I am watching and I will certainly carry out all my plans. Then the Lord spoke to me again and asked, what do you see now? And I replied, I see a pot of boiling water spilling from the north. Yes, the Lord said, for terror from the north will boil out on the people of this land. Sometimes when God gives these pictures through the prophets, he explains what they mean. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes they're just there and we need to pray and try and figure it out or it becomes clear as events unfold hundreds of years in the future. You say, well, if it's all so confusing, why should we bother, why did God bother putting it there and why should we bother reading it? Well, there are a number of purposes, a number of reasons for prophecy. But first, when you say prophecy, most people think of foretelling the future. What's it going to happen when Jesus returns? I don't know. I used to know. I read a book about it. But then I made the mistake of reading another book about it. And none of the books agree. So... The Bible is, is, leaves it open to interpretation. So when you say prophecy, most people think of foretelling the future. And prophecy does include foretelling the future, but not always. A classic definition says prophecy is speaking truth to power. It can be a dangerous thing. The purpose of prophecy is to warn people of the dangers of turning against God's way. Say, why in the world would Israel and Judah, after God has led them out of Egypt, has taken them across the Red Sea, has brought them through the wilderness with the manna, has done all of these things, why in the world would they follow the pagan religions? Well, because the pagan religions were more fun. Baal and Asherah didn't care how people treated each other. They were only interested in being worshipped through, and, and their, their worship involved sensuality and ritual prostitution and the occasional child sacrifice. But God was trying to get his people to understand that he was not like those pagan gods. To God, obedience to his way, which means acting right. To God, obedience and mercy are more important than sacrifice. See, it's not, I want to do this. And the price list on the the sins says, I want to do this sin and that's going to cost me a goat. Well, that's worthwhile. I'll do that. I've got a goat to spare. So I'll go ahead and do this sin and then I'll kill the goat and God will be satisfied and everything will be hunky-dory. That's not the way God meant it to be. What God wants us to understand from all that animal sacrifice stuff is that God hates sin because of what it's going to do to me. He loves me and he doesn't want me doing that. 
And so, when I do it, he requires sacrifices to drive home to me how serious it is. And something else that I had not really realized until recently is that in the Old Testament law, sacrifices are always for inadvertent sins. Whoops, I didn't mean to do that. Now I'm in trouble. What do I do? There are many examples in the Old Testament where when people deliberately said, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do it my way. And they didn't repent. Many examples where that was met with death. So prophecy was to warn against turning away from God. Prophecy is to inspire hope and perseverance among the faithful. All the beautiful prophecies we love to quote about heaven and the lamb lying down with the lion and all of that kind of thing. We need to understand that prophecy is often contingent. Just because God showed it to you whether he showed it to Israel in an Old Testament prophecy, by the way, or whether he shows it to you in a dream, doesn't mean it's going to necessarily happen. It's a warning. You can pray against it. You can change. God sent Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to warn them. And the whole reason Jonah tried to run away and got wound up in the belly of the whale is because he didn't want to warn them because he was afraid they might repent, and Jonah wanted to see him destroyed. Well, God sent the whale and sent Jonah, and Jonah went back and prophesied, and the Ninevites did believe, and they repented, and God did not destroy Nineveh. It's contingent. God loves to give us second chances, third chances, 17th chances. As we'll see in a few weeks, the prophetic words of the New Testament and the church age, including the present day, follow many of these same principles. So, what does any of this have to do with us today? First, it's important to understand how to read the prophecy sections of the Bible, because the Bible is God's word to you. It's the owner's manual for human life. It's the operating instructions for planet Earth. It's a love letter from God to you. And prophecy is a big part of that. So if you understand what prophecy is all about and how to understand it, it helps you better understand the owner's manual, the operating instructions, the love letter. Second, 2,500 years after what we've been talking about, a lot of Christians still make the same mistake the Israelites did. Some people feel like all they have to do to stay in good with God is go to church and put something in the offering plate. And if you feel that way, you're making the same mistake the Israelites did when they thought God was just like all the false pagan gods just interested in sacrifices, rituals. God doesn't need your sacrifices. God wants your love for him and for all of his other children. God is your father, and he wants you to act in a way that upholds the honor of the family name. Third, and maybe most important, is the lesson from our key verse. 
As long as the key sought, as long as the king sought guidance from the Lord, God gave him success. When the king stopped seeking God's guidance, when they figured they could handle things on their own, that's when things went wrong. I bet if most of us look back on our lives, we can find the same thing is true. And notice, does it say, as long as the king sought guidance from the Lord about huge, major, really important decisions that affected a lot of people, God gave him success? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say, as long as the king sought guidance from the Lord about things that were really complicated and confusing that he didn't understand, God gave him success? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say, as long as the king sought guidance from the Lord about things he couldn't just handle himself, God gave him success? No, it doesn't say that. None of those qualifiers. But you know, if we're honest with ourselves, the truth is a lot of us live our lives as if the Bible did say it one of those ways. Some people say, Oh, I'm not going to bother God with my little problems. God has bigger things to worry about, all the stuff going on in the world. People who say that think they're being humble or modest. And it's good to be humble and modest. But the fact is, the result of saying that is actually just the opposite. Because first, it's saying we only need God to help us with the big things and we can handle the rest ourselves. That's not humility. Saying you can handle anything without God is not humility. It's just the opposite. And second, if somebody says they don't want to bother God, it shows they really don't know much about Him. Because if they really knew God, they'd know God is plenty big enough to handle the big things and all of our little things too. A friend of mine said, God has plenty of bandwidth. To handle it all. Second, if they really knew God, they'd know that God doesn't consider you a bother. God loves you. He loves to do things for us. In fact, the Bible commands us to ask God for things. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So don't ever say you're not going to bother God. God loves you. And that means if you're concerned about something, God is concerned about it. But except in very rare circumstances, he won't do anything about it unless you ask him. So ask. Sometimes it's not that we don't want to bother God. We just don't think about asking God's guidance or opinion or direction on something. It just slips our mind. And when you think about it, that's not very smart. Because God's the one who can help us the most. And he wants to help us because he loves us. So here's something to work on. Develop the habit of seeking God's guidance in every decision, big or little. Say, how do I do that? I had a professor in seminary who said, go to the grocery store and ask God which can of beans he wants you to buy. Now, God doesn't care what can of beans you're buying. But God does care that you learn to hear his voice. And this is a kind of a little harmless kind of a thing where you can practice it and learn it. And if you get the wrong can of beans, nobody's hurt. 
Did you ever think about why God gave us a book of histories and biographies and poetry and visions instead of just giving us a policy book? A lot of us would be a lot happier if we could look it up in the Bible and it says policy 101.3a, whenever a happens, do x. Policy 101.3b, whenever b happens, do y. God didn't give us that kind of a book because God is more interested, he's interested in more than just making sure we do everything exactly how he wants it. Now, don't get me wrong, it's important to do things the way God wants them because the reason he wants them that way is because it's best for us. And God loves us, so he always wants what's best for us. But the main point here is that God loves us. And love means a relationship, and a relationship means communication. So when we face a decision or need guidance in something, God doesn't want us running to a policy book. He wants us coming to him, saying, Daddy, what do I do? Because he loves being with us. And because sometimes when A happens, God wants you to do X, but the next time the same thing happens, he might want you to do Y. Because God can see things you can't see. And all of that means knowing God personally. And if there's anybody here this morning who's not sure you do, I'd love to talk with you about it. But we are running late and we have communion, which is another blessing from God. So let's say our key verse together. 2 Chronicles 26.5 As long as the king sought guidance from the Lord, God gave him success. Second Chronicles 26, 5. Thank you for listening to this sermon. And I pray it blessed you. Again, I'm Pastor David Wentz, and for more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, please visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. May God bless you as we do Christianity together. See you next time.